Welcome to Reality Check, challenging debate on the state of education today. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome again to Reality Check. This is Jeannie Allen, and I am so pleased that you're with us today, especially for um, this amazing guest. It is my honor that Lieutenant Governor Dan Forrest of the great state of North Carolina, Tar Heel, is our guest today in Reality Check. Uh, Dan Forrest has been Lieutenant Governor since January 2013, and prior to that he was a business community member, architect, family man, uh, longtime participant in all things uh, related to North Carolina. So I am so pleased to have you today, Dan. Thanks. Thank you, Jeannie, for having me on. It's good to be with you. Well, you have uh, such uh, a really interesting job. I, I think that lieutenant governor, state to state, all vary. But in North Carolina, uh, the LG serves as president of the North Carolina Senate. Of course, that's most states. A voting member of the State Board of Education, State Board of Community Colleges. Um, and you're actually uh, engaged directly in a number of other issues, military affairs, food manufacturing. You're the chair of the Energy Policy Council and one of my favorites, post-secondary education credentials. So you're pretty busy. <laughs> yeah, we're pretty busy. Uh, I think sometimes we uh, take on about as much as we can chew up and swallow at any given time. So we have a lot going on, but we do spend uh, a lot of our time in the place that's obviously near and dear to your heart in the world of education. Yeah, and it's pretty amazing and remarkable how much North Carolina, uh, how far it has come uh, in the last several years in terms of being able to really deliver on promises to kids. So I'd love to kick off talking, uh, Lieutenant Governor, about the digital learning plan in North Carolina that you've helped fuel. What's, what's going on and why has it changed so dramatically? Uh, well, you know, actually, Jeannie, the work's been going on for a lot of years in North Carolina. That's a good part. People started about 10 years ago realizing that we were going to have this need uh, to connect our schools and our classrooms and even the last mile of homes being a, a big rural state that we are. But we're also the ninth uh, largest state in the country, so we have a lot of students. Uh, and we have a really a need, this, this need and desire to change the way our uh, uh, teachers teach and the way our students learn. And so... Uh, about six years ago, um, when I was actually running the first time, I was kind of running on this platform of, of saying, you know, I, I believe North Carolina can be the first state in the nation to have every classroom connected to high-speed broadband, uh, not just because of uh, work we were doing at the time, but because of work that's been done, in, uh, you know, back through the years. We made a bunch of trips to Washington, D.C. We met with the F uh, FCC chairman and, and others to help them uh, rewrite their E-rate rules and that sort of thing. It's all in the weeds. But... We told them, we said, you know, we want North Carolina to be a leader in this effort. We think we're further along than anybody else. Please let us be uh, a model for you. And they said, yes, we agree. And so just this past June, uh, we had Chairman Pai down here. We uh, drove around for the day uh, meeting at schools and introducing the fact that we were we are now the very first state in the nation to have every single classroom connected to high-speed broadband. And then that backed up with uh, this thing that you mentioned a minute ago, this digital learning plan, mm -hmm. uh, this comprehensive plan to make sure that it's not just about the tools and the technology in the classroom, but how we utilize that t technology uh, to reach students in a, a unique way. 
Well, and that's that's such a key part of it because I think a lot of people do sometimes think, well, we've got the technology, we're done. But it really isn't. I mean, a, a technology could be a pencil, but the but yeah. the but the critical thing about what you've done um, in such a rural state, I think some people have said actually North Carolina, uh, given its size, is actually the most rural uh, in yeah. terms of the size and the number of people in it, which means you really have to be connecting everyone much more thoughtfully. Yeah, I mean, you, there's no doubt it's true for every state, but it's true in North Carolina as well. And if you look at our poor rural parts of our state, uh, you will find those schools uh, that are struggling the most, rather those students that are struggling the most. North Carolina, like many other states, has uh, lots of uh, generational poverty. And you follow those lines of generational poverty, and you're going to find the DNF schools around our state. And uh, I don't think we should, uh, you know, um, be relegating those students in those areas to DNF schools. I think all students, regardless of their zip code, should have equal opportunity for a really excellent education. And part of what this, uh, you know, um, uh, spanning or bridging this digital divide does is just that. You know, we have a school of science and math in North Carolina, which is one of the highest ranked uh, schools of its kind in the country, where our brightest students in the math and science fields can go and they can live on campus and they can you know, really get uh, college and beyond education in the school. Well, now we have an opportunity for every student in North Carolina, regardless of where you live, to connect uh, via technology to places like the School of Science and Math and the best and brightest teachers and professors around the world in real time. Those students that are advanced can advance at a much more quick pace and those students that need to slow down can slow down and we can uh, introduce now because we have the tools because of the digital learning plan we can uh, introduce into North Carolina competency or mastery based learning for the first time. We've talked a little bit on this show before uh, with folks in the higher ed field uh, about MOOCs and yeah. uh, massive open online courses and uh, you know the Coursera's and the edX's the world I mean higher ed figured this out before K-12 in a way I mean again not to disparage K-12 it's just a little yeah. bit more laborious right just a little more difficult to get to um, a little bit more bureaucratic or maybe a lot but the bottom <laughs> line is you have millions of people across the world who are currently taking courses from you know Stanford University history professors or MIT yeah. scientists and to be able to now say that we can do that for our younger students is fantastic yeah no doubt about it and you know I think uh, it's uh, kind of the old adage that you know we can accomplish anything if we don't really care who gets the credit I think we're at a place where you know even our teachers really have to realize this that they don't have to know everything anymore you know, uh, there used to be a time where uh, the teacher sat in the classroom and they were the purveyors of all the knowledge. This kind of, they had the knowledge and they transferred that knowledge to the student. And now pretty much everybody in this world, uh, everybody in America anyway, has all the knowledge in the world at their fingertips in, in one way or another. Like you said, we can, we can go take classes from Stanford and Harvard and MIT and get the knowledge. We may not get the degree when we take the class, but we can go get the knowledge. And so uh, how do we start to make this transition where the teachers uh, can teach the topics that they're excellent at teaching, and then they can be facilitators at other topics that they may not be as knowledgeable in, and they can you know, help these students grow at a much more uh, uh, quick pace uh, than we've been able to do in the past. So we have a world of opportunity ahead of us, and uh, I think that North Carolina is going to be helping to chart that course. Yeah, you know, it's, it, and it's not just incoming, right? I mean, UNC has been a pioneer in uh, yeah. getting higher education outside the state to people who want to go to UNC without having to be on campus. 
Um, so there really it, it really is extraordinary. And you know, you talked about rural communities, Lieutenant Governor Forrest, and how difficult it is oftentimes to reach these students with the rigor and and the content that they need. Beyond the digital scope, though, what is it we have to do to transform uh, rural education so that no matter where you live, you have exposure to great opportunities? Well, you're going to have to incentivize teachers in the right way to, you know, really excellent teachers to go to these rural communities and to stay there for for some period of time. Uh, And I don't think it has to be as long term as everybody thinks. We would like that. That would be great. But, you know, Teach for America... um, does that and and they do it well even with teachers that are there for three four or five years some of them end up staying for a lifetime but i think that we have this opportunity to incentivize teachers now um, to be part of those communities to be leaders in those communities and uh, we're just going to have to change the model you know we, we live in north carolina in a state that is probably like most of them you, you would know better than i but we kind of have a one size fits all pay scale for all teachers all teachers are the same no matter what you rise with your pay with longevity and we're starting to transition that in our in our state right now so um, we've we passed new legislation in the last session that is focused on this very thing, to be able to attract teachers to hard-to-fill positions and to hard-to-fill uh, positions in, in certain locations that teachers don't want to go to. So um, I think that that's um, something we're starting to deal with, but I think we've really got to turn this pay scale model upside down if we want to a- attract the best and brightest teachers to those locales. Well, so well said, and you know, I can't help but think about the summer – 18 uh, walkouts in North Carolina. Right. And that was an uncomfortable subject for lots of people. North Carolina, Arizona, it was uh, being pushed in Puerto Rico. But I was struck by it, it, the, the problem, right? The problem that was being put out there was really not the problem. Everyone thinks, well, <laughs> this is about teacher pay. Yeah. And yes, nobody, nobody wants teachers to be making as little as they are. But then going to the same subject you just raised, it really is about having the ability to pay differentially. If you want to be a part-time teacher and want to have summers off and not have to grade homework, you should be able to get a certain level. And if you want to be on 24-7, there should be another level. And the kind of money we're paying people because we fix it on how many years you've been teaching and without regard to what you actually do, really seems crazy. Yeah, yeah, you know, and the, there was such a, a lie there spread by the uh, you know the National Teachers Union or in our local teachers union about teacher pay in North Carolina. We, you know, since uh, you know Republicans took control six years ago here in North Carolina, eight years ago here in North Carolina now, um, we have increased teacher pay the last six years. Compensation increases six years in a row in our state. We we raised starting teacher pay. Um, from thirty to thirty-five thousand dollars, and this next year we'll have finished nineteen percent teacher pay increases across the board. I don't care what industry you're in, nineteen percent increases is pretty good for anybody uh, over the last uh, six years. So, uh, at the average teacher compensation in North Carolina right now is seventy-eight thousand dollars. It's not ten thousand dollars like a lot of people would make you think. So there's a whole lie that's being you know, spread throughout the country about these types of issues. Uh, yes, and I agree with you. I think uh, all teachers probably want to get paid more, and I think all people would want to be able to pay those teachers more, but all governments are living with uh, limited resources to be able to do that. 
and uh, and we have to start to think creatively about how we reward our best and brightest teachers, uh, those that have the most potential for the most impact for students. And how we shift funds, right? So so having just these finite funds that go by districts and by certain state yeah. programs also limit our ability to to change things up and to put resources in different places. And I can imagine um, you know, a world where both because of some of the differential pay you guys are creating as well as the digital learning plan um, and other things, we should be able to make a lot of variations, no? Well, I hope so. You know, it's it's hard uh, turning this uh, giant aircraft carrier in, in, a, in a tight river here, and, and certainly bureaucracy is, in and of itself, is always resistant to change. You don't don't find much innovation in the world of bureaucracy, uh, and that's kind of the way it's meant to be, I think. But uh, I think if we're going to really compete with the world, we're going to have to do that. I think not just at the K-12 level, but also at the university level. Uh, I think that we're seeing this, uh, you know, this world that we live in today, where uh, the millennial generation is going to be taking on a new different kind of job every three to five years. And so they're obviously not going to go back and get a new university degree from the university. They're going to have to, you know, find uh, creative outlets to, to learn for a lifetime. And things like Western Governors University are doing that here in North Carolina now. And uh, again, competency-based student, or those students who are adult students can move at their own pace to get either the degrees or the certificates, uh, uh, even badging in the future. The, these kind of things are going to be the, the way that people are trained uh, and educated for the workforce of tomorrow. Well, and you mentioned competency earlier. I was thinking about that as well. There's some um, recent news out of North Carolina about how many manufacturers are turning to apprentices and apprenticeship yeah. ideas to attract people. You know, it used to be that um, businesses, no matter whether they were in manufacturing or service um, or attracting people sitting behind a desk, they'd say, give me a well-educated, well-rounded person and I will train them. And now they're the, sort of the confidence level about well-rounded is not there. They want specialized. They want skilled. And they're not finding enough in our schools. Yeah, I think you're right. I, I think I anticipate a time in the very near future when you're going to see corporations all over our country and around the world actually go into high schools and start to recruit just like a colleges do recruit the uh, you know football players and basketball players and soccer players i think you're going to see uh, these these companies go into high schools and recruit the best and brightest students to come into their company to work in a uh, some kind of uh, new apprenticeship type of model where they pay these students to put them through school to train them and educate them to the things that they're going to need to do to uh, work for that company. I think it's a it's a kind of a model that you'll see pop up around the country. Apprenticeship model is just the uh, tip of the iceberg, and we're growing that here in North Carolina. We're expanding the apprenticeship model. In fact, I was supposed to be going to uh, Washington, D.C. to meet with the Secretary of Labor in two days, but we're sitting here preparing for a hurricane right now, so I'm not going right. to be taking that trip. But, um, yeah, we're, we are um, fast and furious trying to uh, catch up with some other states around the country who are doing this really well, including our, uh, our friends in South Carolina and our friends in Iowa who have a, a good model as well. Well, there was this great quote in this article I was reading, um, and it's a quote by someone at the Center on Education and Skills at New America, which is a progressive-slash-more-liberal-leaning think tank. Um, and yet, despite that, I, uh, there's some really interesting synergies that uh, show you this is not really ideological. Yeah. And he's talking about if apprenticeships are going to thrive in the U.S., they can't be seen as an alternative to higher education. It has to be a way to and through college. College credit is still the coin of the realm. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, 
I can't remember who it was that said it, but uh, recently I heard uh, somebody giving a speech and saying, you know, uh, in this day and age, what would you rather have? Would you rather have the knowledge of a Princeton degree um, without the paper, without the, the, the degree itself, or would you rather have the paper that hangs on your wall without the knowledge? And the answer was, well, I'd rather have the paper that hangs on my wall without the knowledge because that's what you need to go get the job. So it just kind of proven the point that what people want is the paper. Right. You know, they want that thing to hang on their wall so they can go get their job. And so that tells you that this whole model is going to be turned upside down. And I agree. Right now, apprenticeships are seen as those uh, blue-collar, second-rate, uh, community college type uh, of jobs, and that's wrong. I think that that's, a, uh, that's wrong-headed. And I think we have to get out of that mindset. And yet, though, if you go out and talk to parents, you know, parents all across our state will be saying, you know, four-year college isn't for everybody. Not everybody needs to go get a four-year degree. But you ask them where their kids are going to go, and they're saying, oh, well, they're going to the four-year university. Right. So uh, it's a complete uh, mind shift that has to change culturally across our country. Um, and uh, I think that's really going to take a lot of years to do. You know, I don't know if you're a fan of Atlas Shrugged or not. I, I love that. <laughs> okay, yeah, so, I love that book. <laughs> uh, me too, and our and our listeners will uh, will like this analogy. But I was just thinking as you were saying that about John Galt, and here he was this philosopher, yeah. and yet he worked with his hands on actually building um, transformative modern um, machinery. And you know, throughout Atlas Shrugged, they're talking about people who work with their hands, who had their ability to have skills, but yet they were also the smartest people. Um, out there. So I do think you can have both, and and for too long we've presented either or. Yeah, I mean, and, and I think that the system, uh, you know, really does that intentionally. There's a lot of money in this business. You know, th this is a money business. You can always follow the money on, on every issue uh, related to education, and this is one of them. You think about the billions and billions of dollars that are thrown into higher ed that, you know, make sure that these universities have to continue to operate the way that they're operating. I'm not knocking a university degree. I'm just saying that there are other alternative paths, and um, you're going to have to find ways to attract students. And if that way is by attracting the money, you're saying, we're going to pay you to come to our university we're gonna, uh, or our company. We're going to give you all the knowledge and skills you need to have a long career here without having $100,000 in debt and no job when you come out. I think that's going to be a, an attractive model to a lot of really young, bright students in high school. Well, maybe we should create a new, a new model for higher ed and skills at the same time and call it the Atlas Shrug model. <laughs> there you go, John Galt University. John Galt University, I love it. <laughs> So um, speaking of innovation, you were instrumental uh, a couple of years ago in helping create this uh, entity called the Innovative School District, and uh, it is now giving life to um, at least one new school to start in a rural community. Mm -hmm. I'd love you to share a little bit about that and whether you think that's also a model for other places. Well, we'll see. I mean, uh, you know, it's, uh, we're just getting started this year, and uh, we were hoping to have five schools going, and we have one. That was a little bit of a, a disappointment. Um, but, yeah, I was a big proponent of that. It was really pushed by Rob Bryant and our um, in the legislature and House member. Uh, this was this is um, uh, very transformative, especially for, I believe, poor rural communities in our state that may not have 
um, uh, resources to transform their schools. So basically we say, you know, listen, if you're a D or an F school in North Carolina, first of all, you can volunteer to uh, be an innovative school district for to allow a charter entity or another entity to come take over your school and to breathe some life and innovation into that school. And so we're doing that now down in Robeson County. It's our poorest county in our state. School did volunteer, said, yes, please pick us. And yet at the same time, Jeannie, there were other schools that said, stay away from us. Uh, we don't want you to come here and, and change our F school. We like our F school just the way it is. And uh, I think that's kind of a shame. I think when you see these generational F schools, across a state, um, the state should do anything in its power, whatever invention and innovation they can come up with to um, see real growth in that school they should do because we should not tolerate uh, F schools for for one year, much less 10. You know, as you know, we are um, hunting and, and trying to learn from uh, that community, Robison, as well as others, uh, for a rural community that really wants to jump into this uh, feet first. I mean, we believe that um, so many of us do. Uh, if you improve schools, you will improve communities. And to ignore and allow, as you said, these schools to fester there or to have towns and communities where you know you grew up there and you look around and no one wants to be there anymore because the the stores are closed and there's no commerce and um, schools are falling apart uh, it's not right and there's more we could be doing yeah and it's uh, it's kind of you know it's an endless uh, cycle too you know if you had the opportunity to bring business to that community, then those employees that are going to be moving there and the executives that are going to be moving there want to make sure that they can educate their kids. And so then they look at the community and go, wow, those are some of the worst schools in the state. Uh, they need the jobs, but we're not going to put our kids uh, through that. And so the businesses say, no, say, no we're not going to go there. We're going to go to, uh, in North Carolina's terms, we're going to go to Raleigh. We're going to go to Charlotte. We're going to go to Greensboro, places where they can find a decent education. And so, uh, yeah, it's a, a you know, self-fulfilling uh, cycle that you go through until, I believe, until you start to make transformation in those schools. And so hopefully this model uh, will work. Hopefully this will be the first of many schools that we can do this with. And uh, it's also, you know, the, 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 the legislation allowed for these schools to do some innovative things themselves as well. Hopefully you'll see some innovation happen outside of the innovative school district model um, that allows schools to innovate in new ways. Well, and, and there's an increasing discussion about more charter schools and choices in rural communities, which for a long, long time people said, oh, well, there's not enough students there. But it's kind of a yeah. build it and you'll come, don't you think? Yeah, I do think so. I mean, I think that uh, I believe if these innovative opportunities show up or just an opportunity for a good education shows up in these communities, that the parents are going to make that choice. Why would you not allow that parent to make that choice? And so um, I think we should. it's incumbent upon us to allow that to happen, as we've done in North Carolina, by opening the opportunity. But I hope it's also incumbent upon these uh, charter school groups to start to look differently at our rural communities and see opportunity uh for these students as well. I mean, it's obviously a lot easier to make a, a big profit if you're living in, a, you know, a, an urban area where you know you're going to have a certain population of students. But I'm hoping that these charter um, entities will start to look at rural parts of states and say, we have an opportunity to make real change and do real impact in these communities. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Um, and speaking of, you know, uh, the, the good that can be done by 
community colleges working both sort of up and down, like the, the education spectrum. You know, the, the contribution that I know North Carolina's got a fantastic system of community colleges. They're still working on trying to get it uh, right and meeting 21st century needs. But don't you see a lot of, of, of work around community colleges to try to help draw better education down and up both ways? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, one of the brightest spots we have in North Carolina, we have, well, we have 58 community colleges, so that we have 100 counties, so we, you know, basically in every two counties we have a community college, so it's really close to the people, really close to where the need is. But uh, what you uh, see in our state, as you do in many other states, is we call it early college here, uh, where students can, while they're in high school, they can enroll in the community college and they can take community college classes, which uh, gives them uh, credit uh, to go through high school as well as getting them a degree. By the time they graduate high school, they can have a two-year associate's degree and be two years ahead of the game as they go into college. Obviously, that saves them time and money going into the university or it prepares them for a job right out of school in a new way. Uh, and uh, this is, I think it's a great model. It's a really bright spot in our state, along with dual enrollment and those kind of things that allow students to take college credits early on from community college or from our university system. Uh, and then on the upside of that, yeah, I mean, our community colleges are right there. They're in the communities uh, where the businesses are, where the needs are, where the new businesses are moving, and they are the tool that's there to help uh, specifically educate or train those uh, workers for the tasks that are at hand at those businesses right there in their communities. Yeah, it's extraordinary, and there's so much going on uh, with education and workforce development and an expanded economy in North Carolina. You must feel so proud every day when you wake up that you're a lieutenant governor. Well, I am proud, Jeannie, but I am, uh, you know, probably the eternal pessimist and that I, you know, also see the glass half full and half empty at the same time, meaning that we can, we have so much room for improvement. You know, we'll never really rest and we'll never be finished in the world of education. As you know, you've committed your life uh, to, to this effort and uh, we have a lot more work to do. So there are some things we can hang our hats on and be proud of for the moment, but the reality is uh, there are still a lot of students out there that um, are not graduating, that are not able to read and write and not able to uh, get prepared for the kinds of jobs that we have out there right now, including computer science jobs and STEM jobs and those kind of things. And we just got a lot of work to do. So we'll, we'll really never rest on our laurels here. Well, on that note, I just want to tell you how much I appreciate that you are out there fighting for uh, great education opportunity and innovation for kids. Lieutenant Governor Dan Forrest, thank you so much for being my guest on this edition of Reality Check. Well, Jeannie, thank you for having me. We'll look forward to the next time. Absolutely. And for those of you who want to follow Dan Forrest uh, on Twitter, it's at DanForrestNC, at Lieutenant Governor Dan Forrest. You can also uh, connect with him through our website, edreform.com, of course, NRO, National Review Online. And uh, don't forget to subscribe and listen next time. Thanks again, Lieutenant Governor Dan Forrest. Thank you, Jenny. Listen and subscribe to Reality Check on edreform.com, National Review Online, iTunes, Stitcher, and everywhere podcasts are heard. Find out more at edreform.com slash reality check.